This week, we're covering another Q&A episode. Welcome to the podcast, helping you overcome your proximal hamstring tendinopathy. This podcast is designed to help you understand this condition, learn the most effective evidence-based treatments, and of course, bust the widespread misconceptions. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm an online physiotherapist, recreational athlete, creator of the Run Smarter series, and a chronic proximal hamstring tendinopathy battler. Whether you are an athlete or not, this podcast will educate and empower you in taking the right steps to overcome this horrible condition. So let's give you the right knowledge along with practical takeaways in today's lesson. Thanks for joining me on another episode this week. Hopefully your rehab is going well. Hopefully you're uh, practicing uh, some of the practical takeaways from these episodes and seeing the results. As we've been following suit for the last couple of weeks, we are still getting through some questions that have come in, some really nice questions um, that we haven't necessarily covered too much on the podcast before. Uh, We're talking about sitting, we're talking about other things like foam rolling, massage guns, stretches, and then PHT warm-ups when getting into your particular activity. So let's dive in. We have our first question was from Jane Barker and Jane asks, does it mean it is improving when you're progressing with the weight, but sitting pain still remains painful? Good question. I think a lot of people would have a very similar experience. Uh, I talk with people with PHT all the time and it is a common experience, but not something that is always considered. Like I sometimes have people that don't, that find sitting absolutely fine. It's just bending forward or running or um, trying to put on their shoes. Like those particular activities would be provocative, but Uh, And then we have some people where exercise is fine. It's just sitting that really stirs things up. It all just depends on the the state of the tendon, depends on what part of the tendon is actually affected, depends on how you're sitting, depends on what exercise you're doing. There's so many factors that um, will lead to a tailored experience or just a unique experience. And so for Jane's case, progressing through the strength work, but the sitting symptoms remain constant and aren't improving. So some of you may be experiencing this. Some of you may have a totally different experience, but um, when speaking with a lot of people with PHT, I do see this as uh, I've seen this scenario come up quite often. And so sitting, we need to understand is a form of compressing the tendon. And I have had a few listeners reach out and say, I still don't get what you mean when you say compression. So I'll try to do my best here to explain it. Uh, If you can imagine that the tendon itself attaches onto your sitting bone, most people know the pelvis and those um, two rounded sitting bones. And if you're sitting on a hard surface, it is exactly those bones that um, have to withstand a lot of that pressure on the seat. Now the tendon attaches onto that bone, but wraps around the bone first before attaching behind the sitting bone. And so essentially what we mean with compression in this sense is you'll be sitting and you'll have the seat 
then you'll have the tendon, then you'll have the bone. So it's all, it's kind of like squashing that tendon and that that's totally fine. Tendons will be able to tolerate the, the squashing, but if it's a tendinopathy that is quite low in its tolerance, that might start producing an ache, might start producing some sort of soreness. It's not making things worse. I've said that on the podcast before. It's not making the symptoms worse if sitting gets worse. It's just becoming a little bit more irritated. But the tendon itself, the fibers in the tendon itself are becoming more damaged. So that is um, in its rawest sense what the compression is. And the tendon itself uh, needs to adapt to this compression in order for you to see improvements in your rehab. So we need to try and find a way for you to tolerate the sitting compression. And I should say as well, with the when we're talking about this compression, some people have noted that hard surfaces really irritate the tendon. Some people have noticed that hard surfaces are fine for the tendon. And it's actually soft surfaces that are that cause more irritation. And my best understanding is that it's probably a different part of the tendon that gets affected. So you're probably a few millimeters off um, with its pathology or it's a part of the tendon. Maybe it's deep within the tendon or it's more towards the surface of the tendon that's being affected, which would um, sort of produce different symptoms. And you'd expect different symptoms if it's a slightly different part of the tendon that is producing that soreness or is affected to that with that tendinopathy. So we need the tendon to start tolerating more of that compression. And so what we do is we do weights um, and we need to progress those weights into compression. So if you're doing a, what we call a prone hamstring curl, if you're lying on your stomach and you have weights at your ankle and then you pull your ankle towards your um, hips, that is engaging the hamstrings, it's engaging the hamstring tendon, but it's not necessarily wrapping around that bone. It's not wrapping around that sitting bone because of the angle the hips are in. Whereas we need the hips to flex more in order for the tendon to wrap around that bone. And if we do that under load, then the tendon starts to um, foster this stimulus of compression And if we do it in the right sense, if we do it with the right dosage, and then we're progressing with that, then it will be able to tolerate more of that compression. And so that's why we highly encourage exercises like squats, like especially deadlifts, um, or those Nordic hip dips in order for the tendon to start waking. I'm saying, oh, this is what we need to get used to. I understand you're doing this quite often and it's getting quite heavy. I need to do my job of becoming stronger and adapting to the stimulus. And so you can understand that sitting is quite a high form of compression. And so your strength work will need to progress quite far before you start seeing uh, benefits with your sitting. And a lot of people, you know, they start their deadlifts, they're getting stronger and stronger and stronger, but it just doesn't surpass the demand of sitting, uh, the compression that's required for sitting. So if people aren't familiar um, or if people are only doing their deadlifts and they're only doing like a quarter range of movement or a half range of movement, this is why we need to progress the, the range of movement as well because the increase in the range will increase the demand of compression 
And so if people are familiar, I have a deadlift progression episode that they can head to. But essentially what it means is um, you need to really progress quite a lot into compression, which takes a lot of time. So you could be progressing your weights. You could be like in Jane's case, progressing your weights with strength, progressing your weights with compression, and you might start seeing results with those particular progressions but you just need to reach a certain threshold that carries over into sitting, which can take a a bit of time. So yes, this particular scenario does make sense that you can start seeing improvements day by day, improvements with your particular uh, activity of choice that might be running, might be cycling, might be swimming, and you can see good gains, but then sitting is still a bit of an issue because we still need to reach that threshold, that demanding compression, which is quite high when you're sitting. But also keep in mind that sitting, uh, similar to running, a lot of people say, how strong do I need to get in my rehab? How many deadlifts and squats do I need to do before I can get back to running? And that's why I have that episode talking about using running as a part of your rehab, not just the end result. Sitting is very much the same case because you can have Um, a sitting rehab protocol where we work out what your level of tolerance is. It might be five minutes. And if you can only tolerate five minutes before it starts getting irritable, then we only sit for four minutes. And we do that maybe three times a day. And as we do that, we are loading up the tendon in sitting in the right dosage that doesn't flare things up. And we get the tendon to start tolerating that level of sitting. And then next time we sit a little bit more, next time we sit a little bit more, next time we do a little bit with a harder surface and very similar to how you would have a walk run program to build up your your running uh, fitness levels and your running tolerance. We can do exactly the same for sitting. So in Jane's case, when it's like, how much weights do I need to lift before I start seeing improvements with sitting? It's more of a, let's see what level of, sitting we can do, do that and slowly build up. So we're building up your sitting tolerance directly, concurrently building up your your strength and conditioning to tolerate more compression. So we're sort of attacking it from two directions. We're attacking this problem from two different solutions and seeing results that way. Next, we have Titra and she asks, This may have been already addressed on other episodes. While strengthening seems to be the primary mode of rehab, what, if any, is evidence on modalities like stretching, foam rolling, massage guns for temporary relief from pain so we can do our strengthening protocols? Uh, I don't have much on the evidence side of things for these particular modalities for this specific condition, but I can sort of lay down my thoughts on this particular scenario. Um, First of all, let's address stretching. So stretching can be unhelpful in particular scenarios. In a scenario where um, it used to be said, like if someone isn't really familiar with the PHT pathology, if you go to a health professional who isn't familiar with it, very common about 10 years ago, they would say you need to stretch it more often. And then someone goes away when they stretch it, it feels like it targets that area, kind of produces a bit of a sore spot. 
and they think that it was beneficial. So these clients would go home and just constantly stretch the tendon because they that's what they were told to do. And they thought this was going to help manage and heal the condition. But turns out that stretching doesn't do things to heal the tendon. And because it is more of an insertional tendinopathy, it tends to irritate the tendon a little bit more if overdone. So a lot of people can extract that and say, okay, stretching is bad for the tendon. Um, Let's avoid stretching altogether. And then we've sort of swayed the other way in terms of um, opinions and created this fear around stretching. When in fact, it lies somewhere in between. It can be okay to stretch, but you need to work out what level of stretching you can you can tolerate. Similar to sitting. Sitting isn't bad for the tendon. Uh, all you need to do is find a dosage that you can tolerate and then you'll be completely fine. So keep that in mind because there's a lot of confusion around that and people say, Brody, I listened to your podcast. So I've totally avoided stretching. Um, maybe I'll probably have to go back to earlier episodes to see what language I used when it comes to um, stretching because I had recognized that a lot of people were stretching, making things worse. Um, But keep in mind, stretching is okay as long as you stretch within those particular parameters that you can tolerate. Because I've seen some PHG clients that can tolerate really high levels of stretching. They can do yoga, they can do Pilates, and they're totally fine. In the same way that I have seen people with PHT that can tolerate sitting, they can sit all day long. It's just because that tendon can tolerate that level of um, whatever activity it is. So keep that in mind and kind of reflect on yourself and what you believe your sitting tolerance is. And then anything below that is totally fine. In, In fact, it's encouraged because I've seen people totally avoid stretching and sitting all together and that just fosters more weakening or less stimulus and so as time goes on they become that tolerance diminishes less and less and so you become less able to stretch less able to sit and that's not a good scenario as well so it's encouraged that you still continue to do these things in a dosage that you can tolerate so that's my rant on stretching um stretching can be helpful It can help settle down the pain, but keep in mind that stretching doesn't heal anything, doesn't um, attribute to um, healing the pathology of tendinopathies. It might help settle down pain momentarily, like Chitra said. Um, It can be used as a modality to settle down pain, but it will have to come on an individual basis. Everyone has different responses to different stimulus, and so... You can try stretching your hips. You can try stretching your hamstring. You can try stretching your quads and see how you feel. Um, If you wanted to Google what, um, I think it's a yoga thing, they call it a a pretzel stretch where you're stretching your glutes. Um, If you sit on a chair and you bring your ankle up to your knee, um, if you say cross your right ankle over your left knee and drop your right knee out to the side and then sort of lean forward you're more stretching like the upper hamstring as well as the glutes and that can kind of be a a temporary relief and if that provides a temporary relief maybe five ten minutes and it doesn't irritate the tendon then it can definitely be used as a method before and after doing your strengthening techniques um but 
comes at an individual basis because some people might do that stretch and instead of making things easier, it's actually irritated things. So keep that in mind. And the same thing with foam rolling. Um, yes, I've seen some people can get relief when releasing things like the, the mid belly of the hamstring or their glutes, the front of their hips, the side of their hips, and they do get momentary relief and then they can move on into their strengthening exercises. Totally fine. Um, I wouldn't use the foam roller high up in the sitting bone because not only are you compressing that tendon, but you also tend to move it around because um, you roll over that sitting bone. So rather than it being compressed, it's being compressed, squashed, and rolled around in different positions. Um, I don't see a scenario where that would be beneficial. Um, it might be indifferent, but it also might be a bit of an irritant depending on the individual. Massage guns we need to be a little bit careful about, especially around sensitive areas. Yes, you might um, massage gun your quads, your hips around that area. Don't go close to the tendon. Don't go close to the sitting bone. I believe that's just going to irritate things even further. I have seen some cases of runners that um, not necessarily PHT, more like knee pain, ITBs, um, plantar fascia, calf issues, where they massage gun directly on that irritated area and just makes things worse but they think it's because it's just the injury getting worse because they're running and they don't necessarily correlate the massage gun to irritating the area and it's only until we remove the massage gun that things get significantly better so be careful i think just um, be sensible and make sure you're not just irritating a sensitive area uh, so all these things, yes, you can do it. Yes, it can reduce symptoms momentarily. I'm talking like, you know, 10 minutes or so. Um, so they can be implemented on the individual basis. However, it must be accompanied with strength and conditioning and load management like Chitra suggests. Um, but they can be a, a useful tool into settling down things so that, it, so that strength and conditioning can be more comfortable. But in the same way that it might be effective for some, might be ineffective for others. So please just do it on an individual basis. Put your scientific hat on, do it as a bit of an experiment and see if that experiment is successful. And if it is successful, make sure that you are seeing a trend of improvements over a longer period of time. So we're talking week by week, we're talking month by month. Make sure that you are seeing improvements because you could get momentary relief with stretching, foam rolling, massage guns. But in the long term, it's actually hindering the long-term trend of healing. So keep that in mind. Um, make sure that we're seeing the short-term effects and also the long-term benefits. Heading into our last question now, let me scroll down. Carol Purcell. So Carol asks, what are the best warm-ups and cool-down stretches when you are easing yourself back into running after a PHT diagnosis. So if you are getting symptoms, if you are getting PHT symptoms and running has been okay and you're slowly building things in, we can do some particular warm-up methods and cool-down methods in order to um, help, I guess, reduce symptoms and be able to tolerate more or higher levels of activity. Um, very similar to stretching, uh, everyone has a different experience different reaction to different routines, which is why it's so hard to answer some of these questions. But I've come up with three uh, warm-up strategies 
that you can try. And again, we take that hat, we take that scientist hat, we put it on, we use, we see what our experiments are like, we see what the outcomes of those experiments are, and then test again, test again until we find something that's unique, uniquely beneficial for us. Number one, you can just try easing into the movement. So we use running. I know Carol said she was getting into running. We can try getting into, say, fast walking, then into slow jogging, and then into whatever session we have planned. And that could be enough, similar to cycling. You could just um, jump on the bike and then you just slowly ease the intensity and then just slowly pick it up until we've reached the desired intensity of the session and then just spin throughout that session. That is a very obviously easy approach. Sometimes that may be all that is required, particularly if you're easing yourself back into um, after having done some rehab and having had the PHT diagnosis, easing back into things that might even just be low levels of exercise. So if it is low levels and low intensities that you're easing yourself back into, then the warm-up itself doesn't need to be highly focused and can just be, you know, slowly picking up the speeds or picking up the intensity into that particular session. That's number one. That's pretty easy to administer. Number two, we can do some light stretches. So this might be the the next um, experiment that you choose to one to take. It can be some light stretches. So some hip flexor stretches some glute stretches. You might want to do like a light um, pretzel stretch or pigeon pose uh, just to stretch the glutes and the upper hamstring. I I wouldn't do anything too excessive. I'd probably keep to, you know, 10, 15 seconds per stretch. And you can also do some um, either static, so those stretch and holds, or you can do something a little bit more dynamic. You can do... Um, jogging on the spot with high knees. You can do butt flicks or heel flicks. Um, you can do side lunges. You can do walking lunges, those particular drills that just help, you know, get the blood flowing, get the, the muscles kind of just stretched a little bit, just through movement. That's what we mean when we say dynamic stretches. That whole thing might take about six, one to two minutes. So just um, jogging on the spot with high knees, you can do that for 20 seconds. The high heels, you can do that for about 20 seconds. You can do walking lunges for 20 seconds and, you know, just work your way through the side lunges, work your way through leg swings. You might want to put, um, hold onto a wall or hold onto a fence and then swing the legs back and forth side to side. Give that a try. Maybe that's enough to free up particular movements and then you get into your activity and maybe symptoms have settled, maybe you're able to tolerate greater distances, but we only do these in short little experiments. Uh, you wouldn't do this warm technique and said, Brody said I could probably tolerate more, let me do double what I did last time and see how I go. That's not what this is about. But the third routine that you can try is something that I would, uh, is more tailored towards tendon pathology and tendon warm-ups and that is what we call pre-activation exercises so these are uh, loading style exercises that can 
potentially have an analgesic effect. So when we say analgesic, we mean reduce in pain. It can settle down your pain sometimes till it's pain-free and then away you go. Because we know that tendons love load, they love slow, heavy load, then we can use this to our advantage before actually partaking in something like a cardio workout. So some examples that I have would be depending what you can tolerate, but I've seen long lever bridges work really well. So most people know what a bridge is, but we just walk our heels further away from our body and then come up into a bridge. So you're really long elongated with your bridge and that loads up the hamstring, loads up the, the tendon quite a lot. And you can just do 10, 15, 20 second holds, depending on what you can tolerate and do about three sets of those. And every time you should notice that every repeat that you do, you should notice that the symptoms tend to diminish a little bit. Then you can probably progress from there and do a long lever bridge with marching on the spot. So maintain that long lever bridge and then you just lift up one foot, then it goes back down, lift up the other foot, goes back down. You're kind of just marching on the spot, which is starting to more mimic the running, starting to more mimic that the requirements of the tendon for certain parts of the running phase. But again, you might start noticing that pain diminishes as you um, go through repeats of this. You might even just do some deadlifts, do some single leg deadlifts, do some Nordic hip dips, do these particular exercises to see if you have this analgesic effect, especially if you notice that during the week when you do your strength and conditioning, because everyone with PhD is doing it. Uh, if you notice that your first set when you do your deadlifts is like a, you know, a three out of 10, and then your second set is like a one or a two, and then your third set is relatively pain-free, this means that you're having this analgesic warm-up effect throughout your strength and conditioning. So you can use this to your advantage when you go for a run or when you have to do your, or when you go to do your cardio workouts, just do one or two sets of slow, heavy deadlifts, receive that analgesic effect, and then go for your run. So this is what we mean when we say pre-activation exercises. And everyone has a certain level of strength. Everyone has a certain level of irritation, irritability, um, certain aggravating factors, certain easing factors. And so you'll need to experiment, find which exercises, which type of exercises um, best suit you. That's why I've come with a couple of examples here for you to try. But when doing these pre-activation exercises before your cardio workout, I will suggest don't push to fatigue. That's not the idea. Um, it is the idea sometimes with our strength and conditioning, but we don't want to do deadlifts, do your long lever bridges, and then the hamstrings get a really decent burn. They're starting to get like quite fatigued and then you go for your run. That's not what this session is about. It's about warming up the tendons. So one to two sets, you could probably do um, two sets of deadlifts, not really push yourself to fatigue, still go quite heavy, but just do it slow. And maybe if you're used to doing 10 reps, maybe only do six. And so you're still fresh. The tendon still had this warm up effect. And then you can continue on into your run and then use it as an experiment. See how you feel, because you might be able to go through that run with less discomfort. You might have less of a reaction later on. 
and then see how things feel. Um, and the second part of this question was to do with like a, a, a warm down or a cool down. We could do the same thing. We could still do our pre-activation exercises if you are, if you're tolerating it well. Um, I particular, when I've had tendinopathies in the past, have responded really well to these pre-activation exercises, whether it's my knee, whether it's my um, my pes anserinus on the inside of my knee. But uh, I really focused on that throughout uh, before my run. Then I'd go for my run, come back, and then throughout the day, I'd do some pre-activation exercise as well just to keep the analgesic effect going. Then the next day, usually back to baseline. So you can use that yourself. So... Thanks, Jane, Chitra, and Carol for sending in those questions. Uh, hopefully that helped uh, and you can start implementing these on your rehab, whether that's to do with your sitting, whether it's to do with any stretching, foam rolling, massage guns that you, you may have considered or a warm-up or cool-down um, during your particular running or cycling or cardio endeavors. And so next week we'll go away from our Q&As. We'll talk about um, the difference between a painful strong tendon and a painful weak tendon which is very very important to um, have a distinction between the two so we'll catch you next time thanks once again for listening and taking control of your rehab if you are a runner and love learning through the podcast format then go ahead and check out the run smarter podcast hosted by me i'll include the link along with all the other links mentioned today in the show notes so open up your device Click on the show description and all the links will be there waiting for you. Congratulations on paving your way forward towards an empowering, pain-free future. And remember, knowledge is power.